Uh, welcome to Health or Consequences. I'm Paul Hattis from the Tufts University School of Medicine with my colleague John McDonough from the Harvard School of Public Health. We're here to talk about coronavirus today. It's Friday afternoon, March 13th, fast changes. And in that regard, we have an incredibly knowledgeable critical care physician from the Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. Jerome Lee, who's with us today. Dr. Lee and I uh, met actually a, number, a few years ago because we shared a common mentor, Robert Sigmund, who taught many of us about public health and community benefit responsibilities. What a fitting mentor to have in the era that we have upon us now. Dr. Lee, if I can call you Jerome, uh, please say a few things about your current job and title at Mass General uh, and a bit about your training background, if you would. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'm an emergency medicine and ICU physician at Mass General Hospital. I was trained initially in emergency medicine and did a fellowship in critical care, and now I run one of our mixed ICUs at Mass General, the Blake 12 ICU. Additionally, I'm a medical officer for a deployable federal team that responds to disasters, the Disaster Medical Assistance Team's DMATS, part of the DMAT MA1 team uh, here in the Boston metro area. So in your clinical responsibilities, you'll see the, some of the sickest patients that the hospital sees, particularly in those intensive care units, including potentially, if it comes to this, COVID-19 infected patients, I would assume. Yes, and the sickest COVID-19 patients would come to us in the ICUs. Okay. So one of the big concerns that people have, there are many concerns out there, but one in particular that comes into your expertise, Dr. Lee, is whether or not we have sufficient capacity. If we see a surge in cases, particularly for ICU beds and for other critical care services, that you all will potentially be overwhelmed with patients. Is there a plan, is there a strategy at this point that you're aware of for how to deal with a big surge of cases if that indeed happens? Yes, I think at this point we're wor worried about the worst case scenario, hoping for the best We've been planning for this since the beginning of this, and I will say that on the ICU side, if it gets to the point of Italy or some other places we've heard about in the world, uh, we do not have the capacity to take care of that many patients. Um, we say we don't just mean the MGH, you mean the entire hospital system, I'm sensing from yes. your answer. Okay. And I believe that's true for probably the U.S. healthcare system in general. We don't have enough ventilators or ICU beds in general for this. Um, and I think this was also seen and sort of thought about during the influenza H1N1 pandemic back in the day. Um, but for now, yes, we're actively planning. Um, it's actually been my whole life this week. We have multiple meetings um, across the system. We've uh, at MGH itself, we've activated our hospital incident command system, and that was activated uh, a few months ago when this all started. Uh, on the ICU planning side, everything really ticked up over the last two weeks, and we're starting to think about what we would do for not just the early patients of how we would take care of these guys in the correct and best way, because at this point, we probably and might need special rooms and might not need special rooms. This changes from day to day, of course, and we're using the CDC guidelines. But at the same time, if there's a huge surge of critically ill patients, how will we deal with that? Um, we're looking at leveraging a lot of resources we already have. We do have a good amount of resources where I work, so it's kind of nice. A lot of great colleagues that we can sort of pull from different areas and also look at other places outside of our ICUs that we could turn into ICU locations to take care of patients with the right teams. Mm -hmm. uh, 
a lot about who's at greatest risk and a lot in the news these days about elderly with chronic conditions or even all folks who are immune compromised. But healthcare workers and first responders are also at risk. How are they being protected to reduce the probability of their becoming ill? Yes. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the statistics are always tough. But what we've seen and heard and looking at the literature, at least out of initially out of China, was about 20% of healthcare workers were infected or positive for COVID-19. And then out of Italy, somewhere around 10% with, with knowing that the denominator is unknown. Uh, but we, that shows us that healthcare workers, first responders are at very high risk. I think what we do have now is we have the time since uh, right now we're actively planning and we are working on teaching everyone the proper way of using their PPE, their personal protective equipment, um, and different ways of taking it off and, and putting it on. It's not even wearing the correct one. Is that we don't want to cross-contaminate and take it off properly. And so we are actively at Mass General teaching everyone, reviewing it, and uh, we have a multi-step process to be sure someone is ready for this. Now, if somebody becomes infected, they'll have to at least stop work initially and take care of whatever their own illness issues are and um, isolation, et cetera. Are there worries about having sufficient staff of all kinds to meet care needs? Yes. I think the workforce, workplace, bench um, is deep for us right now, but I think the worry is there. And we see this out of reports from Italy from China, and then maybe even a little bit out of Washington State, where um, currently, ideally, we either furlough a clinician or someone who's um, at high risk or positive for 14 days, but that's a long time to take someone out of um, the rotation. And so part of this is trying to figure out who can cross cover, who can work with each other, um, how we work across departments and uh, who can work where and what we need to do. Uh, but I think that's all going to be ever-changing. I think I read yesterday that there's 50 nurses at Berkshire Medical Center who are being quarantined now due to exposure out of an 800 RN workforce. And they said at the moment they can handle it based on the volume. But, uh, you know, is that volume of patients pick up, it, the, the worries that you're suggesting uh, could be real? And and also, um, I think at this point, since uh, the symptoms for COVID-19 are essentially upper respiratory illness, sort of like the common cold, um, we have, and we can deal with this now, is a lot of our staff, nurses, physicians who have a runny nose, a fever, we're asking them to stay out of work for good reason. Um, but as if this ramps up, that could be a bigger issue. One thing that we are encountering, and also this is personal too, is that um, my son's school just closed. And so childcare is a big issue. We have a lot of two physician families here and we're trying to figure out, everyone's trying to internally figure out um, ways of dealing with that, but still being able to work and have our workforce as well. So you came to our room here from the emergency department at Mass General? Uh, no, I I'm actually came from meetings, okay. but I'll be working in the ICU this evening. What's 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 going on? What's the status? What's it like inside Mass General right now? Are you getting overwhelmed with people coming through, or is it a slow trickle? Is it manageable? What's what's it like at what's it what's it like over there uh, today? I think that it's it's been okay in many ways. I think with everything slowly shutting down, schools closing, um, people sort of doing the social distancing. I think there's less and less folks coming into the hospital for elective things, and even the outpatient world, I think there's a message to move everyone to 
uh, try to call in for symptoms unless they really need to come in. We also have moved a lot of our staff to work from home and so and canceled a lot of our gatherings. Initially, I think it was about a week or so ago, we canceled all meetings greater than 100 folks. Um, but now we're really amping up and we've canceled most of our in-person meetings in lieu of teleconferences. So it's kind of empty in that way. Are clinically are canceled cases happening on the surgical side or other right now or not, not quite at that point? Uh, we are, from what I've heard, they are talking about that actively now. Okay. So can we talk a little bit about testing. Um, it seems in terms of the U.S. story nationally that testing is the big fail thus far in this whole process. Other countries, particularly South Korea but and others, are way, way ahead of the United States in terms of testing. Um, what's your view? What's your assessment? Um, is that uh, view accurate? And uh, what are you hearing about where things are going to go with testing? Uh, I will caveat this by saying I'm not an expert on the testing, but I'll say that I feel like it is a big problem. Um, we don't have enough tests to test everyone that we probably should and want. We are only have a certain amount we can test uh, based on what, of course, the Department of Health has available and what they can do. Um, but I think if we had access to more tests, we would be testing more folks, including our own staff, if uh, they're potentially, you know, um, exposed and everything else. Um, if there's anything we can do to increase the number of tests, that would be ideal. I think we're still taking a, a lot of direction from our government uh, themselves. Uh, we are working on an internal test that I've been told will be online hopefully soon, and they're trying to get FDA approval and everything else. Um, but we should have an internal MGH test that hopefully will be available to us too. And I know that there's been a few commercial ones that have been approved and there's other ones being worked on, um, but nothing fully has been decided. For now, we're still dependent on the governmental tests. And so MGH does not right now have the capacity to do testing inside the hospital at all? We do not. And I don't think we're allowed to, from what I understand, until um, everything is in place. We are fully uh, reliable, relying on them. What does that say to you about what is the actual true number of active cases across Massachusetts and across the country right now? Does that say that the official numbers that we're getting are just an extraordinary underestimate or under number in terms of what's actually happening out there? Yeah, I think it's in some ways good and bad news. The bad news is we're probably not testing enough, so there's probably a lot of folks who are positive that we do not know about. Who, and, but at the same time, we also know a lot of folks are probably asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, and it doesn't really cause them any issues. And because we, are not, we don't have the true number of folks who are really infected, I think a lot of these reports of mortality and everything else is probably higher than what it really is. Mm -hmm. Is there a problem with people saying, oh, I may have it or not, but I'm not symptomatic and I feel great or I feel okay, and thus they don't restrain themselves from going out and being out in public because they think they're not at risk for themselves or they're not at risk for other people. Is that a concern or a fear that you folks are seeing or realizing in some way? It is. And I think that's what is so unique about this one is that it is the common cold virus, the coronavirus. And, and so most folks might not even know they have it or just have the sniffles or a low-grade fever. 
And um, it's not them that we're concerned about. It's the sort of folks who are at high risk for complications, mostly the elderly with comorbidities, uh, with other diseases. And in many ways, it's sort of the same thing for the flu. These are the folks who really get devastated by the flu and corona. Mm-hmm. Now, you've told us a fair amount about the Massachusetts General Hospital, but it lives in an ecosystem other, of other hospitals here in, in Boston and Massachusetts. What do you know about the communication and or planning that goes on uh, amongst all those institutions, especially uh, things that might have to be communicated or planned together if there is a surge of patients? I'm not directly involved in a lot of the cross-institution or even citywide. Um, from what I've heard and understand is there's a lot of communication, a lot of meetings, a lot of folks coming together to talk about what to do across institutions, definitely within uh, partners or the new name, um, Mass General Brigham, I believe, um, that there's a lot of collaborative committees already across the hospitals that we've been leveraging to talk about these issues. Okay. You noted at, 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 at the uh, beginning of, of our uh, discussion that you're a medical officer, part of the disaster medical assistance team in Massachusetts. Can you tell our podcast audience a little bit about what that team does and are they deployed or now or in the future that might tie into COVID-19 illness? Uh, Yes. So we are all intermittent federal employees uh, where we're deployable by the federal government if they decide that they need um, medical resources for a disaster zone or whatever else they need. Uh, We have different missions, uh, but a big mission, especially in these cases, is to sort of um, augment the local medical care as needed or for many other things, depending on uh, what's needed for the response. Um, yes, um, our teams are out now. They're actively engaged in operations on COVID throughout. And um, I wish I was with them. Sometime. Okay. <laughs> this afternoon, Governor Baker at his press conference was talking about the need to flatten the curve. Uh, can you explain that concept for our listening audience and explain why it's important in terms of what he's talking about? Yes. Yeah, so at this point, I think we are all worried that the cases are already there and patients are going to get sicker. Um, And because the incubation is so long, somewhere between 2 to 14 days before some folks even show symptoms. And we also know from some of the data out of other places is that the sicker ones usually present later too, somewhere between 8 to 9 to 10 days after having symptoms. So it's sort of a late presentation. that we're at the upslope of the curve. Uh, So the idea is with all these um, social restrictions and everything else we're doing. Social distancing. Sorry, yeah, social distancing. um, Is, and every hand hygiene and everything else we're doing is to reduce the number of cases per day and spread it over a longer period so we don't overwhelm uh, our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So we're hearing some extraordinary estimates in terms of the global impact and the global reach of this virus. My colleague at the Harvard Chan School, Mark Lipsitz, uh, estimating somewhere between 20 to 60 percent of the global population will contract this virus um, with 20 percent serious and mortality somewhere between 1 and 3 percent. How do you respond to that overwhelming estimate? How does that make you feel? Um, what's the conversation like? Is there a sense that that's just um, unrealistic or is that is that this is what we're preparing for? How bad um, 
are you all anticipating that this uh, will get? I think I am a critical care doctor, so I do see the sickest folks. I would say that we are very worried on the ICU side. And it's not just me, it's my friends across the nation who we talk to regularly about this. Uh, but internally, we are preparing in case these numbers are correct, um, because there's no way to know until it happens in many ways. And so that's why I think this is the time to sort of prepare um, hospitals and systems so that we have enough capacity to take the surge. And there's different ways to do this. We just have to have a good plan in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one final detail in, in that regard, Dr. Ja, one of also one other colleague of John says we only have about 600 ICU beds in Eastern Massachusetts, of which on average 75 percent are occupied. So I assume that even though we're talking about COVID-19 illness, people are going to have heart attacks and other things along the way, and still need to occupy some of those beds. So it's it's it really sort of underscores the the challenge of meeting the the needs now and then uh, ramping up if needed. Definitely. And I think it's, this is also the time to start thinking about, uh, for hospitals, setting crisis standards of care and whatever they need to do. Because I think if it gets to a point like Italy and everything else where, as you guys have all seen, there's a lot of moral distress by the frontline staff. And this moral distress, I think, in many ways is not fully preventable, but we can definitely curtail it a lot um, with the correct system so that we don't have a bedside clinician making impossible decisions. So let me me underscore that. So you could have a heart attack patient who right now occupies an ICU bed and is stable in a world where there's enough beds, you would leave that patient there because it's the safest and maybe best thing to do, but you might not have that ability uh, in in weeks to come if there is a surge, is an example of what you're talking about. Yes, perfect. So doctor, you're at the epicenter, the front line of dealing with this virus, and you must be aware of the conversation going on around society in all different directions. And you're also an Asian American physician and probably have noticed people calling this the uh, Wuhan virus, um, talking about this as a, talking about Europe as the cause of this, um, a lot of sort of political noise and accusations getting thrown about. Do you have any response, reaction to that in the context of what we're trying to deal with and address right now in terms of some of the more negative dynamics going on across American society and around the world? I do have a gut reaction in that I am very worried. And I think uh, I'm lucky in that I'm in a place where all my colleagues are very respectful. Um, But I will say that knowing that I'm an Asian American, I take the subway to work. And even if I need to cough a little bit because I have allergies, I I stop myself because I do worry people will think of me differently or look at me differently. I haven't quite noticed that personally, but I have heard multiple personal accounts of things that happened. I do very much worry that folks are thinking this is like the Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus. I've heard uh, other names for it, of course. Um, But I think we definitely need to think of this and talk about it not as a Chinese virus in any way. This is a coronavirus that's affecting the whole world, and we're all in it together. And it did come from China from what we can tell, but they're also big victims in this as well. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jerome Lee critical care physician, Massachusetts General Hospital. We really appreciate 
your sharing uh, your thoughts with us today. And like all the caregivers in the weeks and perhaps months ahead, we wish you uh, the very best, both uh, for your own personal health and in the mission uh, that might befall you. So thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. Great.